But as a state school, we draw students from all over the state and every community had slightly different rates of transmission of the disease. And so that was a big challenge for us trying to look at where were all of our students coming from? What were the what were the risk levels? And then trying to, to make it work for us. And we've gone to some pretty extreme measures to make it safe. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. What is happening across the country for the education of students who are blind? We thought it might be interesting to bring a multi-state perspective to instruction during a pandemic at Schools for the Blind. On February 26, 2021, we sat down with Rob Hare from Maryland, Gina Willette from California, and Scott McCollum from Washington State. As our programs change daily amidst varying COVID statistics, the conversation provides just one snapshot in time with a group of superintendents figuring this year out. Although we're miles apart, you'll hear many similarities in our efforts to promote education and safety. We had so much to say that this will be a two-part episode. After hearing about decision-making, safety, and more today, we'll bring you silver linings, remote learning success, and future outlooks during our next episode. These three are part of my own professional support group, and I'm grateful to share them with you. Hi, Emily. It's Rob Hare, superintendent of the Maryland School for the Blind. And um, yeah, what a what a crazy year this has been um, so far. So um, we've been in partial remote, partial hybrid, partial in person all year long. So um, after the, the initial closings of schools in March um, a year ago now, um, as we came back over the summer, well, actually, like. I guess it was in the summertime, we started having uh, individual sessions. So we're bringing kids on campus for individual orientation mobility lessons, individual braille, individual assessments, especially as part of IEPs. And that we continue, that's been this, that's been true since the summer. We've been doing that all the way through. And so it's very limited and, and teachers, orientation mobility teachers and other teachers will go out into the community and do near the students' homes and provide services there. Um, then in October, like, so our plan was to reopen. And so in October, um, we um, had students back on campus, preschool through third grade. And so that was about a month. And then the numbers got really bad, if you remember, after Thanksgiving. And so we, we went back to remote and now we're back to in-person. So we're hoping to build up to full in-person by the end of the year. Hey, Emily, this is Gina Ouellette. I'm the superintendent at the California School for the Blind. Um, we have been in 100% remote learning all year, um, which is a little painful to say, uh, but California has really been a hotbed. Um, I know we're not alone in that, but we are definitely one of the states where it's been, um, it, there's been a lot of COVID. So we things were pretty restricted for us when we started the school year. Um, we were in the most restrictive tier in the county we're in, which meant we weren't allowed to reopen at all. Um, we were sort of hoping it might get to that in the fall, but things got worse and worse. And then eventually by December, the entire state was in a 
statewide shutdown. So we went back to that. So we've been remote learning the whole year. What about, uh, so Rob had mentioned that they do some like evaluations and a little bit of O&M in person. Have you been able to do any of that, Gina, or has that all been remote too? Everything we've done has been remote. We haven't done anything in person at all. Our, our, um, our state department of education also really clamped down on having anybody on campus. So even our on-campus operations, even things like HR, uh, business services is really very, very minimal. One or two people on campus per week. And that's it. Hey, Emily, old buddy, old pal. Uh, this is Scott McCollum. I'm the superintendent at the Washington State School for the Blind. Um, our school year has varied quite a bit and much more similar to what Rob talked about at Maryland. We started out in a full remote way. Um, and then by the middle or towards the end of September, we had a number of students coming in for small group instruction. Uh, we were also doing some assessments, um, bringing in students actually even on a residential basis, but just uh, for those assessments. And then uh, by November, we were able to actually expand and bring in some of our res residential programs. And so we had students coming in from around the state. That was really only about, Oh, a little less than half of our total student body. Um, and we were able to continue with that. And we had no transmission or anything on campus, um, but the numbers really started to skyrocket locally um, as we moved into uh, the Thanksgiving break. And so um, from Thanksgiving to January, we actually went back to full remote. And uh, then in January, about midway through January, the Martin Luther King weekend, um, or after that, we were able to bring back residential programs. Um, and so we've been able to continue with that um, all the way until now. And that's actually starting to expand further. Um, and we are looking to expand and have all students back, uh, hopefully by uh, April at the latest. But um, we'll see how this all plays out. Yeah, I know here in Texas, you know, we we've done a little bit of back and forth, but mostly had kids on campus and we're in the same boat. Like we're hoping by the end of the year, we have all the kids back um, that want to be here. We know some kids are going to choose remote as I'm sure you all have kids like that, too. Um, but I'm just really looking forward to getting staff and students back on campus uh, when it's a little bit safer. So how, how did any of if any of you want to chime in about how you made decisions based on being in person or staying remote? Like, how do you make some of those calls? Oh, this is Scott again. Um, you know, we meet, uh, or I guess I have the opportunity to meet with our local public health officials every week and have been since last spring. And so we're meeting with our, our like those individuals along with all the other superintendents from this area weekly. As a state agency, then I'm also meeting with state health officials. And, and so the, I guess in many ways, the decision is somewhat collaborative uh, with that group. When we shut down in November, um, around the Thanksgiving holiday, all the way to January, that was really uh, heeding to the advice of a local public health official who had su suggested to us that we shut down then. But um, honestly, we've also then been working with our staff constantly and, and listening to the community and, and uh, at some level, it falls on my shoulders. What about you, Rob? Yeah, it's uh, pretty similar. Um, for us, the, the local health department didn't know what to do with us <laughs> because 
we're like this, we fall, we don't, we're not, you know, quite a, uh, you know, retirement home. Um, we're not uh, fully like a typical school. So it was hard to, so we, we did seek guidance from them, um, but they weren't always, we were telling them what we thought we needed and then they would you know, kind of respond. But uh, then the state, uh, back in probably the week before school opened or the week before the school year started, the state of Maryland came out with metrics, which was hilarious. I mean, not, not hilarious. It was very important for us because we we didn't really have any kind of criteria to use to like, is it safe or not? What's the prevalence of the disease in the community? What's the positivity rate? What what are the numbers that we need for guidance? Because there were some CDC guidance, there was some other guidance, but nothing adopted at the local level. And so um, when that came out, then we knew like looking around that you couldn't really bring kids back. And the numbers kind of got good. And so we, you know, talking with the senior management team, with the staff, we felt like it was a good idea to bring some kids back. And then we, you know, as soon as the numbers got really bad and the teachers were really having a lot of, they're panicked about the disease. Um, we just decided we, we couldn't keep it on. The whole state was in virtual remote instruction. Why were we staying open? Um, I just, I didn't feel like it was worth it um, to try to force everybody to stay in school and the numbers, the, the metrics were all like the metrics the states had set was were gone by that point. So, um, but they still wanted everybody to be in person, although nobody was. <laughs> so that's kind of, it's just been, and then that, since then they revoked the metrics. So now the metrics are not even part of our decision-making. So it's, it's just really been trying to listen to the science just making decisions based on that. I should have said that we actually also have metrics in Washington. And what was a real struggle is those metrics were really focused on the local level. And so, you know, we were considering that local level of transmission, but as a state school, we draw students from all over the state and every community had slightly different metrics happening and, and or, or rates of transmission of the disease. And so that was a big challenge for us trying to look at where were all of our students coming from? What were the, what were the risk levels? Um, and then trying to, to make it work for us. And we've gone to some pretty extreme measures to make it safe, but Another thing that we did at WSSB was we have a, uh, I guess, a multifaceted group that has representation of pretty much every department on staff, and we've also been meeting weekly. And so that that group has informed a lot of the questions that I've uh, worked through with our local and state health officials to make decisions about reopening or not, or who and when. So that also applied to us. That just reminds me, Scott, that um, we, since the beginning of the school year, I, when the metrics came out, I've made a chart. Uh, so in our weekly update newsletter and my weekly town halls with the staff, it shows all the, the local metrics in the, in the surrounding counties around the school where we have the most students. So you can see the numbers going up, 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 and then like up to 30, 40, 45, you know, per 100,000. Um, so that was, like just looking at the local numbers was powerful. Like I can't, we can't keep it open like this. So anyway, it was, it was useful. And our tolerance for different um, transmission rates seemed to evolve over time. What seemed um, really high early on in the year 
doesn't maybe seem as high now looking back on it, but what was high in, in around Thanksgiving through the, the winter holidays, that actually was, that's been our biggest peak in our state, but um, how we've reacted to the metrics and when by we, I mean the collective we in the state, all of the superintendents and school boards have, has evolved over time. And I would say also that's true with our parents, how they react to um, the transmission rates and the metrics that everybody reads about has evolved with our tolerance for what's happening. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead, Gene. I was going to say you got a lot of state guidance, but what sort of local planning did you guys do with your own staff? Um, well, we, we like, like Scott, we have had an opportunity to meet with public health every week. So that's definitely had a big influence on us. And also similar to Rob, public health often has been like, oh, we don't know what to do with you guys. You guys are different. You don't fit in. One of the things that was really a big, big thing that the state did did give us feedback on was um, the number of counties that we do serve. I mean, we're all state schools; we all serve the whole state. But California, being a huge state, we had students in counties that had such a small, small rate of infection. I mean, at one point, and this was early on. This would have, would have been like, I think May or so. So we were a couple of months into it. We had a student came from a county that had twelve cases, and that was it. And in our county, we had the highest case rate in the entire Northern California region. And so that was a big issue um, with state public health. But the little feedback we did get from them is um, they didn't want students together. And in fact, at one point, somebody, one of the officials said, if you want to make the the best likelihood, the most likelihood that someone, that you're going to create sort of a cluster of cases um, take people from all these different parts of the state and put them together every week, which was exactly what we do. And so that that was a big problem for us. Also, about a quarter to a third of our students fly each week to and from. And so that was sort of, I don't know how many other states have students that fly, but that was sort of a whole other can of worms. We have some students that fly alone, but some students fly with a staff, a staff escort. And just the risk levels with that was another um, Issue. So it became pretty clear to us over the summer, pretty early on, um, with the way the case rates were going in California, that reopening sort of became less and less likely. It it did give us an opportunity during our extended school year. We sort of took the lessons we learned in the spring to pilot a, a more structured um, distance learning program, and that that was great to be able to do that over the summer because by the time we came back in the fall, our staff seemed to feel really prepared. Um, And even the staff who hadn't done extended school year were able to sort of train and give feedback to staff that were just coming back. Now we did a, you know, you mentioned flying kids and counties being at different rates and we were kind we were in the same boat for sure. And so, you know, some of the things we did was changed our operations to include more safety measures, you know, extra spacing on buses, not flying kids testing in counties of high rate, stuff like that. But um, what are some of the other safety measures that you all used in your school to help you sort of reduce the risk, whether it was for staff or for students? Um, I mean, one of the things that we have done, we don't we don't have students on campus, but we have severely, significantly restricted the number of, students, of, of staff on campus. So we really only have um, less than a dozen people on campus on any given day. Um, we do a a screening process every day. Anybody who comes on campus has to sort of affirm and attest that they're symptom free. They haven't been knowingly exposed, um, that kind of thing. 
Um, and that helps with contact tracing. We've only had one, knock on wood, we've only had one case. Um, and we had two staff members who came into contact with that person and had to quarantine, but that's been it. So that's been really great. But it's been nice to have the, the check-in info for contact tracing. Um, we upgraded our HVAC filters. Um, we have like many of our schools, I think we have sort of older buildings and definitely not the most sophisticated. And um, we've purchased external, these external air filters and what have you. And other than that, it's just been masking, you know, constant masking, distancing, sanitizing, those kind of measures. I guess similar to what Gina said, uh we have the daily attestations that are on at WSSB, they're electronic and every staff member who is on campus fills that out uh, in the morning and then as they leave. Um, and in the morning, it's all about their health. And when they leave, it's all about who they were close contacts with or who they were assumed close contacts with. Um, we updated some filtration on our campus. We have also old air handling systems uh, on our campus. Um, we've added barriers all over. We have, um, I have such wonderful uh, um, plant manager and staff in my custodial department who built these plexiglass barriers that we have at sort of every high, um, what do we want to call it, like a, a space where people are there regularly. And so, you know, you walk into our main office now and there's a big plexiglass barrier that goes across um, that space. Um, for student lunches, we have uh, individual little cubicles almost like where they uh, it's quite lonely in some ways but it's a way to divide them up because they take their mask off and um, we've had to do that in the cottages as well um, and then just massive amounts of PPE and all different types and different layers for different situations and a lot of it's been training staff about what PPE do you need in a certain situation a cloth mask is required but it's some uh, in some instances you know it's a cloth mask with a face shield in other instances it might be a cloth mask or a um, KN95 mask with a face shield and potentially even a gown and gloves um, we've really made everything available. And I think probably by and large, the biggest thing that we've done is just listen to staff about what are their needs and concerns and tried to pivot in ways that make that, um, make everything available to, to get students the education or to provide students with that education that they all need and deserve. Well, I can echo most of that, like installing the plexiglass, um, having, you know, requiring everybody to wear masks in the building and having a PPE plan. So we worked with a um, we worked with a, a specialist really in 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 these kinds of diseases. Um, she's had a lot of experience, and she also was working as an adjunct physician for our school. Like she was sort of our pediatrician, but she and her husband have done a lot of work, like with Ebola, and so she was like really up on like what to do in this kind of situation. What's the right PPE? And so we had issued, um, so the plan is everybody had to wear surgical mask, which has a higher filtration rate and also a shield. And um, so, and, you know, it's and like, like also the, the N95s as well in certain situations. We also, as part of that consult, uh, felt like because our, a lot of our students cannot mask, I know that you guys, some of you have like really academic students in your programs, we have a wide variety. So you really are, you're in close physical proximity with kids without masks. And so in those cases, we're also not only having people with like 
face shields and surgical masks or N95s, et cetera, depending on all of that, but also um, a testing program. So we, we're gonna have screening testing. So when kids come on campus and when staff come on campus and then twice during the same week, have them tested. So that was and is a part of our, of our protocol to keep everybody safe. Um, and then, and now it was vaccines. Like I was like, I was so like, gangbusters, like we've got to get the vaccines. Like I felt like talking to the health department about getting the testing going was one battle. And then we got that. And then it was, why aren't we on the priority list? So my kids are both in private schools. All their teachers were getting vaccinated. And I was like, the school for the blind needs to be vaccinated. Why? And so we finally got a clinic for that. And so now I feel like we can get all the kids back. Like now we're 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 at a, the precipice of. I mean, unless something happens with the variants, or I just think, you know, with having two thirds of our staff vaccinated, we can do it. Rob, I want to thank you for sharing that uh, video of your doctor, your school's doctor, speaking about the virus sort of early on in this because we shared that with a number of our staff and found that to be helpful. Um, it's interesting for me to listen to. I know, Emily, you you have all had access to some testing for quite a while on your campus. And Rob, I look forward to touching base with you about your experience WSSB was just accepted into our, our state pilot system um, because we've not had access to testing on campus. And so actually I have my first meeting about it on March 1st because then we will be rolling out um, testing and making that available to students and staff um, regularly on our campus. And then also like you, um, we were able to get access to just only a certain um, you know, sort of by position, get access to vaccine for a number of our staff. And thankfully that has reached a majority of our on-campus staff. And again, so that's been a, a nice, um, I, think, I guess an additional level of mitigation that I feel good about and helps us get our students back. Yeah, we've been doing the, um, trying to get vaccines has been pretty stressful, I think for all of our schools and, uh, you know, We've, I think we're up to about 150 of our staff that have gotten at least one dose, um, which is great, but that's not, you know, that's not even half. And, um, and everybody, we're lucky too. We have a community where most people want it, you know, and it's totally optional. And so um, it's, it's just a battle. We'll just keep fighting it. I'm sure we all will until every last person on our campus that wants a vaccine can have it. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. After this interview was recorded, we have seen a lot of progress with vaccines at TSBBI. We have over 80% of employees with at least one dose, and about 40% of employees have been fully vaccinated. Although it remains optional, we're grateful that those seeking vaccines have found them. As was shared during the interview, it really is a game changer. Don't forget to come back next time for more on this discussion. In the second half, you're going to hear about looking ahead and the upside of this year. Part two will bring you a bit of laughter and a lot of inspiration. 
From the TSVBI Outreach Department and Ascensa, Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbbi.edu.